In the last episode, I told the story of the descendants of Japheth's son, Javan, and I tried to trace their migration after they left Babel. First, they went to the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and settled along that shoreline as the Ionians. They also lived on the islands of Cyprus and Rhodes. One branch of the family might have traveled to Spain and settled there, while another moved to Greece. And if the stories we have about them are true, that family eventually spread to Troy, then Italy, and perhaps as far as Britain by around 1100 BC. But those descendants were just one branch of Japheth's family. Javan was just one of Japheth's sons. And if you look in Genesis, there are six more. One of the benefits of tracing Javan's descendants down through history first is that it's those descendants, the Greeks and perhaps the Romans, who wrote a lot of the history we have today. First, the invasions of Alexander the Great in the 300s BC spread the Greek civilization. Then the Roman Empire took over a couple of hundred years later and lasted until almost 500 AD in Europe. Between those two cultures, much, if not most, of the history that you learn in English-speaking countries got its start with Greek or Roman authors, and they might have all been descended from Javan. But what about Japheth's other sons? How do we figure out their history? There are a few clues. First, there are names. From geography and history, scholars have found people or places that sometimes match up with the names of Japheth's sons. Secondly, those Greeks and Romans, they didn't only write about themselves. Just like the Egyptians or the Assyrians I've talked about before, the Greeks and Romans would also write about other people they came across. Though they didn't necessarily use the same names as you find in Genesis. Josephus, the Jewish historian from the days of the Roman Empire, wrote that the Greeks, when looking at the nations surrounding them, changed the names of those nations to make them sound better. He goes on to give the name used in Genesis and what the Greeks used instead. It's hard to know if Josephus' connections are right, but it does give us a set of clues to follow. And if you add together the evidence from history and geography, and the pieces we have that Greek, Roman, and other sources wrote down, you start to see a map of the history of Japheth's sons. It's a map with a lot of names. Names of cities, of tribes, of countries, and of people. It might be hard to keep track of the different characters in this episode. And some parts of the story I've pieced together might be wrong. But the valuable thing to notice is that the names you find in Genesis may also show up in the history of the world. And just like everyone else who tried to build that tower, this is a history that starts at Babel and spreads out from there. The first son of Japheth that Genesis names is Gomer, and it also mentions Gomer's sons, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Tagarma. These grandsons headed north and northwest from Babel. And of them, the one who may have stayed closest to Babel was Togarma. Some of the first references to Togarma are probably from the 1300s BC, when the Hittites, who lived in what is today Turkey, refer to a people called the Togarma or Tagarama. The Assyrians also mention the Tilgarimu, who lived in the Taurus Mountains of Turkey. 
Josephus says that the Greeks called Tagarma's descendants the Phrygians, and he says that they also lived in the middle of what is today Turkey, while some Jewish traditions claim that Tagarma's children became the Turks. Turkey isn't the only location people point to, though. In the early Middle Ages, an Armenian writer said that the Armenians were Togarma's descendants through his son, Hike. Taken together, Togarma or his kids probably headed north from Babel and spread out over an area spanning from the middle of modern Turkey eastward to Armenia. As for Togarma's brothers, Josephus says that Rifath's descendants were called Paphlagonians by the Greeks. They perhaps lived on the coast of the Black Sea in the northern part of Turkey. This theory would put them near the western edge of Tagarma's settlement. Another possibility is that Rifath's descendants traveled north, and the Rapaean Mountains were named after them. Today, we don't have something called the Rapaean Mountains on our maps. They were at the edge of what ancient Greeks knew about geography, and in trying to identify them, scholars make guesses today. The general belief is that they are the Ural Mountains, or the region around where the Volga River empties into the northern end of the Caspian Sea. While there's some mystery around Rifath, we have more clues about the third brother, Ashkenaz. Ashkenaz's children might have started out in Turkey and Armenia as well. The ancient Assyrians talk about a people called the Ashkuza, who lived south of modern-day Armenia, and in northwest Turkey there's a river, a lake, and a city that all have one form or another of the name Ascania. In addition, near that territory is the Black Sea. The Black Sea's name used to be Oxenis, meaning unfriendly, but there's some speculation that Oxenis comes from the name Ashkenaz. Their history doesn't end there, though. Tracing the descendants of Ashkenaz further takes you north around the Black Sea, where they got one of their more famous names, because they probably became one of the ancestors of the Scythians. The Scythians were nomadic warriors who traveled on horseback and fought with bow and arrow or with pointed battle axes. They roamed through modern-day Ukraine, and at times traveled south and ruled the area around the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and even some of Greece. Eventually, the Scythians were pushed back to the land north of the Black Sea, and either disappeared from history or spread into Russia and Siberia, leaving behind tombs and mummies for us to discover. Even this isn't the end of the story of Ashkenaz's children, though. From what we can piece together, they might have also made it to modern-day Germany and settled there. As for the next two sons of Japheth, Tubal and Meshach, they tend to show up together. The Hittites may have called Tubal Tapala, while Assyrian records from 1100 BC tell of Tabal, or Tapal, being allied with Muski, probably Meshach as they both tried to conquer the Tigris and Euphrates river valleys. This record is from a thousand years after they moved away from Babel, and they're still near enough to try to come back and conquer the area. These Tabal and Muski people later settled in Turkey, and probably became known as the Tiberini and Moshkian tribes, with Tubal's descendants coming to control a kingdom on the eastern shores of the Black Sea. It's tough to follow the story further, but while one more recent source dismisses the idea, Several older commentaries point out that the names Tubal and Meshach could be linked to rivers in Russia, one named Tobol and the other Moskva, with the Moskva River located right outside Moscow. That brings me to Tiras, the next of Japheth's sons. Like the other brothers, Tiras's kids might have started on the eastern side of the Black Sea before going north, 
It's not clear just what migration path his descendants followed, and scholars offer a few theories about where they might show up in history. For instance, they could appear in Egyptian records from the 1200s BC that refer to a group of invaders from the north called the Turusha. They could also have lived in the Taurus Mountains in southern Turkey. They may be remembered as the Tursunoi, a tribe of pirates who lived on the western shores of Turkey and raided the waters of the Aegean Sea near Greece. And they may be related to the Tyrheni or Tyrseni, one of the tribes who lived in Greece before the Greeks came, or who lived in Italy, possibly as the ancestors of the Etruscans. There are a lot of theories. The most common suggestion, though, follows what Josephus said and links Tyrus, whom Josephus calls Theris, to the tribe of the Thracians. The Thracians were a group of hard-to-manage warriors who are described by one ancient writer as having red hair and blue eyes. They lived by the straits that go between the Mediterranean and Black Seas and up toward the Danube River. And Tyrus's name shows up in several places around there, including a river near the straits that used to be called Atiras or Athiras, and another river further north. Today, that other river is called the Dniester River, but both the river and a city on its shore used to be named Tyrus. Even maps today have some memory of that name, because a city in Moldova, built in the late 1700s, was named Tiraspol. From there, we can't confidently trace Tiras's descendants much further, though there is an interesting story from Iceland. In that story, Snorri Sturluson, a historian and leader of Iceland living about 200 years after Christianity came to the island, wrote a book explaining some of the legends of the gods that were previously worshipped. Snorri claimed that one of the refugees who escaped from the city of Troy when it fell to the Greeks later became a chief of the Thracians, a chief that Snorri says was named Tror or Thor, and that Thor became the forefather of Odin. Snorri says that these people, Thor and Odin, eventually came to be worshipped as gods. This history could be invented. Perhaps Snorri wanted to connect his list back to the Trojans, or maybe he wanted to rewrite the history of pagan gods to fit with Christianity. Though it is interesting to note that Snorri describes Thor as having red hair and a red beard, even though he may not have known that the Thracians did too. Moving past Tyrus, we come back to Gomer. I talked about Gomer's sons, Togarma, Riphath, and Ashkenaz earlier, but perhaps the most well-known of Gomer's descendants are the ones that kept Gomer's name. I didn't mention them earlier because these may be the ones that traveled furthest from the starting point at Babel. Their migration may have begun on the coasts of the Black and Caspian Seas. Some then traveled north. There's a reference to them from an Assyrian king in the 700s BC, where they're called either Gamir or Gimarai or Gimaraya or Gimaraja. The Greeks, however, called them the Sumerians. And that peninsula on the northern shore of the Black Sea, the Crimean Peninsula, might still be named after them. If you follow these descendants of Gomer further, they became the Kimbri in northern Germany and Denmark, they spread into France and Spain, and according to tradition, they continued on from France to Britain about 300 years after the flood, where they were called the Kimri, Cambri, and Cumbri. As late as the mid-1700s, one commentary noted that the Welsh still called themselves the Cumeri, Simro, and Cumuri. 
If none of those names are familiar to you, that's because today we use a different name when we talk about all of these people. We call them the Celts. And if you're wondering how these Celts made their way across the English Channel, it might have been fairly easy, because maybe there wasn't an English Channel. Instead, what is today the island of Britain might have been a peninsula. Scans taken of the seafloor between the east coast of Britain and the rest of Europe show a landscape of rivers and lakes. And this land wasn't empty. There were probably forests there. And they've brought up artifacts, including tools like axes and hammers, and bones carved into arrowheads or spear points. If you rewind back to this time when Japheth's kids were spreading out around the world, maybe they didn't need a boat to get to Britain. Maybe they walked. But this option was only temporary. To understand why, I want to describe what the world might have been like right after the flood. Exactly what happened during the flood is debated. But regardless of just how it happened, from volcanoes to the movement of tectonic plates, there would have been a lot of heat getting dumped into the oceans. As for the air, volcanoes were spewing ash, and one theory suggests things such as asteroids and meteors may have been colliding with the Earth and launching even more debris into the atmosphere. Combine those effects with volcanoes that probably continued to erupt after the flood, and the air would be filled with dust and vapor. In an earlier episode, I mentioned how just one volcano, Tambora in Indonesia, affected the weather. When Tambora erupted in 1815, it put enough ash into the atmosphere that temperatures cooled and crops failed around the world the next year, causing some people to call it the year without a summer. And Tambora is not the largest volcano on record. There's another one called Toba that was perhaps 18 times bigger. And if asteroids and meteors were involved in the flood too, they may have had an even larger effect than the volcanoes. Combining these ingredients, warm oceans and dim, cold skies, and lots of water would evaporate into the air, but then that moisture would come out as snow. And when there's so much snow that it doesn't melt during the summer, you get glaciers. And when it keeps building up, you get an ice age. As the ice grew, ocean levels went down, and that exposed more and more land connecting Britain to Europe. Later, as the oceans cooled, the skies cleared, and ice began to melt, the ocean levels rose. At some point in the process, this rising sea level and a tsunami or the bursting of an Ice Age lake in the North Sea, or all of those factors combined, and the land linking Britain to Europe was destroyed. And instead, there was the beginnings of the English Channel and the island of Britain we see on maps today. Altogether, during those years while the land bridge lasted, if people wanted to, they may have been able to migrate from Babel to Britain without boats. And they weren't alone. With the hot oceans, Britain was warm enough for hippos. The first set of ancient hippo bones was unearthed in 1851 by workers in central England who were digging clay for bricks. And in the years since then, we've found more examples of hippos who once lived in Britain when the weather was warmer than it is today. Depending on when they came, these Celts, these descendants of Gomer, could have walked all the way across Europe and right out onto the peninsula of Britain, perhaps traveling in the tracks of hippos who'd already made the trip, only to have water flood the land they'd crossed and turn their peninsula into an island and cut them off from the rest of Europe.
Whether on foot or by boat, though, however the Celts came to Britain, they weren't the only ones who did it. Another of Japheth's sons, Magog, has some history in Britain, too. A few moments ago, I mentioned the Scythians, and said that they might have been descended, at least in part, from Ashkenaz, Gomer's son and one of Japheth's grandsons. The Scythians, though, were a group, and while there's a good link between the Scythians and Ashkenaz, Josephus says that they were descended from Magog. The best guess we have is that the Scythians may have been a mixture of Japheth's descendants, and along with those Celts I mentioned a moment ago, some of these Scythians, descended from Magog, appear to have made their way to Britain as well. And there may be evidence for this in the names we use even today. Over time, the word Scythian was translated through the languages of the Greek, and of the Welsh, and of the Saxons, who invaded Britain around 500 AD. And as each group translated the name, there is the suggestion that they changed the letters and sounds of what was once the word Scythian to suit themselves, until Scythian became Scot, and the source of the name Scotland. This history isn't just based on names, though. It's part of Scottish heritage. In 1320, as part of the Declaration of Arbroath, eight Scottish earls and around 40 barons, members of the nobility, sent a letter to the Pope in Rome explaining that they were the descendants of people who traveled from Scythia through Spain around 1600 years earlier, and that they had always been independent and therefore shouldn't be ruled by the English king. That was a lot of names and places. So, to give an overview, from what we can trace of Gomer, Tyrus, Tubal, Meshach, and Magog, five of Japheth's sons named in Genesis, they left Babel, went north on one side or the other of the Black Sea, and spread out into northern and western Europe. Fast-forwarding through time, the oceans that had been warmed by the flood cooled down, so there was less snow. The volcanic dust settled out of the atmosphere, and the glaciers began to melt. Sea levels rose, the North Sea broke through that link connecting Britain to the rest of the continent, and Europe began to look like what you see on a map today. During that same time, the history of Europe became the history we learn today. And in that history, there are stories and legends that also come down to us. Before I talk about those legends, though, I should mention that the written copies we have come from some time in the Middle Ages. That means these copies were made when Christianity had already been present in Europe, Scandinavia, or the British Isles for, in some cases, hundreds of years. Because of this, we can't tell whether the stories or parts of stories we have today are original legends passed from father to son since Japheth's kids left Babel, or legends that were mixed together with details from Genesis after Christianity arrived in the area. That said, while there's lots of stories and folklore that doesn't sound like the history in Genesis, there are also some interesting parallels in the tales that people in Europe tell. Starting in the British Isles, there are legends that tell of a paradise called Elysium. It was a place where people didn't die, but were always young. Though living forever required eating or drinking special food, sometimes berries or nuts, but most often fruit from a tree. The trees of Elysium were also more impressive, having branches made out of silver with apples made from gold. In addition, among Irish legends, there's also the story of a rowan tree whose berries healed wounds and added a year to your life. But the tree was guarded by a dragon who lived in a pool next to it. Meanwhile, in Wales, in the western part of Britain, 
there is a story of a flood. They say that long ago, a lake broke out of its basin and flooded the land with so much water that everyone died except Dwiffin and Dwiffic, who managed to survive on a ship, a ship that had no mast, but did have a male and female of every living thing. After the flood, Dwiffin and Dwiffic settled on the island of Britain and repopulated the world. Moving past Britain and Ireland, there's also interesting stories about what the people in Norway, Denmark, and Iceland believed. Starting with the creation of the world, they say that there was once a great chasm before heaven or earth existed, though somehow there was still a north and a south to this chasm. From the north came icy rivers, in the south it was hot. The ice was melted by warm air from the south, and a giant was formed who became the father of the giants. A cow also came from this dripping ice, giving four rivers of milk from her udder. These legends also talk about a great tree with a well under its roots. It was a place where the gods would gather to gain knowledge or wisdom or to learn the future. In addition, while the gods live a very long time in their stories, they don't live forever. In order to remain young, they have to eat apples of immortality that are kept by one of the goddesses, a goddess whose name means renewal or restoration of youth. The legends from Iceland aren't much like the story of creation in Genesis, but there are similar details. There are four streams of milk coming from a cow versus four rivers in the Garden of Eden. There's a tree that has a well of knowledge under its roots. There are apples that the gods have to eat to stay young. Then you get to the legend the people in Iceland tell about a flood. The cow I mentioned earlier licked the ice or stones, and out came another being who had three grandsons, Odin, Vili, and V. These grandsons killed the giant formed from the ice, and the blood of that giant flooded the world and killed all the other giants, except for one giant and his wife, who survived on a boat made from a hollow tree trunk. Odin, Vili, and V, the three brothers, then used the dead giant's body to form the earth. As for another detail, people who lived in the northern parts of Europe also tell of a three-colored rainbow bridge made by the gods that linked heaven and earth. Maybe all these parallels are just details from Genesis getting mixed into older stories. Maybe. But I think there's a good chance they are memories that go back to a time before Christianity came to northern Europe. In English today, where we have an additional 800 to 1,000 years of Christian influence, we still use words that come from the gods once worshipped by people from Iceland, Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. You see it in the names of the days of the week. Tuesday is named after their god Tyr. Wednesday is named after their god Woden, or Odin. Thursday is named for their god Thor. And Friday is named for their goddess Frigg. Even when Christianity has been around so long, we still have a memory of pieces of another religion. So I wonder if all these details about a tree with knowledge under its roots, apples of immortality, a flood where nearly everyone died, and a rainbow bridge to heaven, I wonder if those stories reach back before Christianity came to the area too, and are memories people handed down since leaving Babel. Moving east through Europe from Norway, you come to Lithuania. In Lithuania, they say that the highest god once looked out of a window in his house in heaven and saw humans showing no justice, but only fighting. So he sent two giants who were water and wind to destroy the world. 
They worked at it for twenty days and nights. Then the god looked out of the window in heaven again and threw down the shells of the nuts he was eating. One shell landed on the tallest mountain, among some humans and animals, and, according to the legend, the people and animals climbed into the shell and used it as a boat. The god eventually stopped the wind and water, and the last two humans were saved. Then the god sent a rainbow to comfort them, and told them to jump nine times. The two people did as they were told, and nine other couples appeared, becoming the forefathers of the nine Lithuanian tribes. In southern Europe, they tell stories about how people used to live forever, get along with the animals, eat good food, and never get sick. Then a woman was given the job of taking care of a fish, but instead of caring for it, she cooked it and ate it. The woman was killed by lightning and a flood came. The woman's husband was commanded to marry someone else, build a boat to save himself and his family and the animals, and to take seeds on board since everything else would be destroyed. The flood lasted for a year, and afterward, it took effort to grow food to eat. Finally, even further east, a group of people living around the Ural Mountains on the far edge of Europe tell a story about a drought that had gone on for seven years when a female giant asked a male giant what they should do. The male giant said they should cut a tree in half and make two boats. Each boat would have food on board, a cover over it, and be anchored to the ground with a long rope. Once these two boats were ready, the giants tried to tell everyone else to do the same thing, but people either didn't know how or didn't follow their directions. Soon, a flood of hot water came, and those who hadn't followed the instructions all died. The flood lasted seven days. When the water went away, there was nothing left to eat. The survivors were about to die of hunger when they prayed to the great God, who then made more animals, fish, and plants for them in answer to their prayer. These stories sound like they have little pieces of the history from Genesis in them. But as I said earlier, the copies we have of these legends aren't very old. In Ireland, the concept of Elysium goes back before Christianity, but the manuscript that has most of the details about it is from the 1000s AD. As for the story of the flood of Dwyffin and Dwyffic in Wales, while there's nothing other than how similar the stories are that suggests it is copied from Genesis, the copy we have only goes back to the 1200s or 1300s AD. The same is true for the legends from Iceland. The copies only go back to the 1200s and 1300s, again, after Christianity had already spread to the region. And one of the major sources was written by Snorri Sturluson, a Christian. These legends are interesting, and they may be genuine, but there's room to be skeptical. Since we only have copies that are fairly recent, you could argue that the details that sound like what you find in Genesis are just details from Genesis that have been mixed into these perhaps older stories. There is a place, though, where that argument struggles. While some of the legends we have tell about floods and apples of immortality, as one scholar has pointed out, there is another set of records that could be useful. Those records include lists of the names of fathers and sons. You can find them in Britain and Iceland. And these lists converge back to a similar set of names. In other words, as you work back through the family trees in each of these places, you find out that they're related. The lists trace the family line back to Woden, or Odin, and some of them even mention Noah. 
The simple answer to this coincidence is that, just like the legends I mentioned earlier, the copies we have of these family trees come from after Christianity showed up. So perhaps they were forged to tie kings back to Noah, or one kingdom invented a list and the other country simply copied it. In these countries in the Middle Ages, a king gained their claim to the throne through their ancestors. A leader wanting to support their right to be king needed to have the correct father, the correct grandfather, and so forth, sometimes with one of the listed ancestors even being considered a god in order to prove they had a claim to the throne. With those traditions in mind, some scholars suggest that when Christianity came to the region and rulers converted to the new religion, they invented fresh parts of their family tree to show that they were related to the Christian god. Maybe that is what happened. Maybe family trees were that easy to change. But even assuming you managed to sneak a change into the records, and assuming everyone in your country accepted that change, that only modifies one list. You've only taken care of the people in your own country. What about in other places? Similar names show up in the lists from Britain and Iceland. One claim is that this record of ancestors was invented in Britain and then copied down a few hundred years later by writers in Iceland. That's possible, but it's interesting to notice that while Britain and Iceland have names in the same order, their lists aren't identical. There are gaps in different places. If these countries were copying one another, they weren't copying very well. And comparing Britain and Iceland leaves out the family tree from Ireland. The Irish records refer all the way back to Magog, the son of Japheth. And while those names could be invented too, in Ireland, family records were so important that every three years, the kings from each province and their main chiefs were required to send copies of their family records into the main assembly so the lists could be checked and any mistakes could be fixed. And this law went back long before Christianity showed up. I'm not saying these lists are right, but even if you dismiss the older parts going back to Noah, Britain and Iceland still remember having Woden as a common ancestor. Combining that with the variation between the lists in Britain and Iceland, and the care people in Ireland took to keep their names of ancestors correct, maybe these records are a genuine tradition of who the people in Britain, Iceland, and Ireland thought they were descended from. And if they are a real tradition, it means people in this part of Europe thought they were all descended from the same family. Perhaps a family just like the one Genesis describes. And if they remember their ancestors, maybe it's not a coincidence that these stories from Europe sound like pieces of the history of the world you find in Genesis. This is not a proof, though. These family trees, just like the legends I mentioned earlier, come from copies that were only made after Christianity came. It's possible they were invented. Maybe the only copies of the family tree that survived until today are the ones that were forged or modified. There's plenty of room for skepticism. Which is why it's good that the stories passed along by the writers of Iceland, the rulers of England, and the recorders of Ireland aren't the only stories we have. If you travel east from where these groups settled in Europe, you come to a line of mountains running north-south from the frozen Arctic down toward the Caspian Sea. This chain of mountains, the Urals, climbs to 6,000 feet above sea level in places, and it forms the border between Europe 
and Asia. And beyond that border is another group of people and another collection of stories. The last three episodes have been trying to show that the history found in the Bible is world history. Now, having done my best to sort through what we know about Europe, Asia comes next. Until then, if you want to learn more about the people who left Babel and explored from Armenia to Iceland, WiderBible.com has a lot of references and links to get you started. The website also has articles on other topics, as well as a place for you to ask questions and a page where you can subscribe if you want to know when something new comes out. I'm Adam Schull. Thanks for listening.